All right, so in this series, we're looking at this idea or this sort of suggestion that the New Testament endorses slavery. And it's a very, well, I think it's a very cynical reading of the New Testament. But I think where it comes from is that we want the New Testament to say uh, abolish slavery. We want it to stand against the institution of slavery. And so because it doesn't, in fact, it seems to do the opposite. It says to slaves, you know, you need to obey your masters, that it's just reinforcing the status quo. It's just doubling down on this evil institution. And so therefore, the New Testament endorses slavery. But I want to suggest that just because it doesn't deal with slavery the way that we want it to or the way that we think it should, that it's not in fact doing that. And so to do that, we need to really go back and unpack what slavery was in the New Testament. And then from that point of view, look again at what is actually going on in the New Testament. We need to reconsider those particular passages and really just everything that's said about the New Testament, and certainly by somebody like Paul, what it's saying about it or to it in light of what the context, what the actual culture was. And so that's what we're doing here uh, over this series. And we'll spend about four weeks looking at this particular topic. So if you missed last week's episode, I'd encourage you to go and, and have a look at that just to get the starting point of where slavery came, came from. But what I suggested there was that slavery was just, it was part of the fabric. The, this was what we call a slave society. And what that means is that the people living in the first century and really any time in the ancient world, they simply couldn't imagine a world without slavery. The reality was, or, or, or the comparison perhaps, was something more like today where could you imagine a world without the internet? It's just not a conceivable thing. It's not just that the internet is something that we add to our society. No, it's actually something we cannot live without. The world as it is, is completely dependent on having the internet here and to remove that would be, as far as we could see, the, the collapse of our whole society and, and all of civilization. That's the, uh, the, 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 the seriousness or, or that's the um, depth with which slavery permeated every single part of the ancient world. It was not something you just simply added on to what you were otherwise doing. It was what made the world go around. And, and the reason for this is because slavery was directly connected to production and labor. For something to be made, everything that was, be, was to be made in this time was made by humans. It was all done by human labor. And so what we need are more bodies to do everything, uh, particularly in an agrarian society where 80 to 90% of the people live and work on the land, we've got to produce food. And to do that, we don't have tractors yet. We haven't invented those yet. We need human labor in order to do that. And so we just need as many bodies as we can, particularly at the harvest, uh, in order to bring the food in. And so slavery was absolutely essential to all forms of production and labor. Well, one good example, not good as in a moral good, but just as a, a sort of a vivid example of what this was like. Um, if you think about ancient Sparta, now you might have seen the movie 300 or uh, you know might have heard bits and pieces about the Spartans. Um, they're a very famous uh, people group, of course. But what was unique about the Spartans wasn't that they did slavery. Everybody did slavery. It was the way that they did it. See, the Spartans were professional soldiers. Now, every other military uh, in that time, going back to ancient Greece, the, the soldiers were also farmers, landowners, and in the fighting season, they would take up arms to go and defend 
their city, Athens, Corinth, whatever it was. The Spartans, on the other hand, and what made them so successful, they were only a small city, but what made them so uh, effective as soldiers is that they spent every single day training. And so the Spartiates, the the, the Spartan soldiers, um, men, all of the fighting men, trained to be soldiers since the age of seven. So from the age of seven, they're taken from their mothers, they're put effectively into a military camp, and for the rest of their their lives, they're trained as soldiers. Every single day, they're trained in as soldiers. Now, this is the prime workforce. These are the men who would otherwise be working the fields and doing all of the other tasks that are required to run a city. And so the question then is, if they're training every day to do the work, then who's doing all of this other these other tasks, who's doing the farming, who's doing the, the blacksmiths and the fishing and all of these other things that are required to be done, well, that's going to be slaves. But as I said, the way that they do it is a little bit unique. What the Spartans had actually done was that they'd had gone and basically captured the, the neighboring cities of Messenia and they had enslaved the entire population. Now, what they had done with this population is they'd made them state slaves. Now, your typical slave practice was that an individual family would own at least one slave, maybe several, and they would do the domestic duties or the duties for that particular family. The difference in Sparta was that the whole city of Sparta owned the slaves of these other cities. So the entire cities had been enslaved and then allocated to various um, Spartan citizens to do their work for them. And so this entire people group were now enslaved to the Spartans to do all of these tasks that the Spartans would otherwise be doing. And so they were the ones that work in the land and doing all of the tasks that were required. And at the same time too, even acting as personal bodyguards for the Spartan soldiers. So if you think about the movie 300, or if you think about the story of Thermopylae with Leonidas and his 300 Spartans, what you have to imagine in that picture is that every one of those Spartan soldiers would have had up to seven uh, um, helots, these, the, this, uh, the name given to these slaves, helots, um, in, as their personal attendants and bodyguards. And so they were trained to fight, but also trained to serve um, each of those Spartan soldiers. Now, this was the, the crazy part about this thing that the Spartans were doing is that there's only about 5,000 Spartan men. Sparta was only a very small city and they were vastly outnumbered by these helots. I mean, multiples to one of uh, outnumbered by this whole slave society that they'd taken for themselves. So what that meant was that they needed to always be present and they needed to present a, a deathly force to keep those slaves from revolting. Now, what makes that... Now, it's, it's strange, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, the nearby city of Athens, Athens knew what, looked at what the Spartans did, and there was never, they never questioned the morality of it. They never said, oh, you've taken slavery too far. They, they never, that, slavery was just what everybody did. What they questioned was, was the wisdom of doing slavery in that way. Because the problem for the Spartans was that they could never leave the city, they could never leave Sparta. And if they did, they could never send their entire force out at one time. And even then, they could only send them out for a very short period of time because if they were gone for too long, the helots were going to rise up, kill all the women and set themselves free. And so they always needed to have a Spartan presence in Sparta in order to ensure that they never lost their slave, their workforce. And so again, it wasn't that that was seen as immoral or taken it too far. It was just, is, is that really a wise way to do 
your slavery because the standard type of slavery is that every family in the ancient world had a slave. The only ones who didn't were the poor families, and that's only because they couldn't afford one, but if they could afford it, they absolutely would have a slave because a slave was there to do the domestic duties. Uh, and then for the most part, you've got slaves out there working in the fields and doing all of the manual labor that you need in order to just to simply get things done. And so then as we saw last week, slaves were just simply property. They were part of the household property, and they were considered amongst your... Um, the objects that you own. They were considered amongst the property value of your particular estate. And again, importantly for us to keep in mind is that no one ever questioned slavery. Slavery was just, it was a fact of life. They could not imagine a world without slavery. They couldn't remember a world without slavery and they could never foresee a world without slavery because it's just the way that things have always been done and the way that we're always going to do things. It was never a question about morality. It was only just ever a question about practicality. We need slaves in order to make this world work, and we can't see another way to do it. And so we're always going to have slaves. So the question was never a moral question. The question was always just, well, do you own slaves or are you a slave? And if you are a slave, you want to be free generally. And if you are free, one of the first things you're going to do is go and get a slave because you see the value in having a slave. The only difference is now that somebody else is doing the work for you rather than you be the slave for somebody else. All right, so that was, we covered a lot of that last week. And so again, go and check out that episode if you want to go into a bit more detail about that. But what I want to look at this week is just the the everyday reality of slavery, just the way in which um, slavery was just part of this world. It was just in, completely embedded into this society. And to try to step into the headspace of what it would have been like um, to be a person living in that time with slaves as just part of what that society was, just to try to get some sort of sense of understanding. Because the thing we have to remember is that the Christians of the New Testament were a part of this world. They were a product of this world. They had been brought up in this world. They did not know a world any differently and thought about this world in the same way really that everybody else did. That that thinking was being changed. Their worldview was being reshaped. And we'll see that in the coming weeks, um, the way that the Christians began to change the way that they viewed slavery. But at a, as a starting point, at the very least, this is how they understood the world to be. So what was that world? That's what was slavery within this? Well, that's what we need to sort of look at today. So a key starting point then is to recognize that slavery, again, it's not something that was added onto the society. We think about our Western society where we take freedom as a, as a granted. We, we are anti-slavery. Slavery is a crime. And so that the, the very idea of it would be an unnatural addition to what would be an otherwise free and peaceful society. That is very new. Going back to this world, slavery was just embedded into the social order. Slavery was a formal rank. You were free or you were slave, and that was written into the law. So it was always, slavery was always connected to hierarchy. It was always connected to power. You know, when we think about, again, thinking about in the West, we think about slavery and our most recent example of slavery being the Atlantic slave trade, and we think about African slavery, and that was always connected with race. It was that was a very Darwinian idea that well, an African person is by virtue of 
their skin color an inferior person to a white person. And so therefore they need to be enslaved. It's a benefit to them to be enslaved. That's a Darwinian sort of very racial idea, but that became the justification for slavery. But that was relatively new. That was kind of in the death throes of slavery as a way to continue to justify what was becoming an increasingly abhorrent practice. And we might deal with that at the end of this series. But for all times before that, slavery had nothing to do with race. You weren't enslaved because of the color of your skin. You would have a black person enslaving a white person and vice versa. Everyone would just be enslaving each other. It had nothing to do with skin color. It had nothing to do with ethnicity. What it had to do with was power. And so the justification for slavery was we fought each other. You lost. You became my slave. That's it. I am more powerful than you, therefore I subjugate you because it's all about power. And we've done a whole series on that with regard to just the, the requirement to be powerful as a man, certainly in the Roman world. So it always had to do with power. It always had to do with hierarchy. And so then slavery was, again, it was a social status as opposed to free. And we see this in Galatians 3.28, which is a very important verse in the context of this topic, where Paul says there's neither slave nor free, male nor free, male Jew nor Gentile. What he's doing is that he's taking those logical divisions that the society understood themselves to be in, one of those being slave and free. A, a slave and free was a, a, a division so natural to the, to the human order as was being male or female. It's just part of who you are. The fact is you're, you're born to be in slavery. That's, that's just part of who you are. And so you always understood yourself within that dichotomy, slave or free. Now, there is sort of a middle ground that we meet later on, which is the freed person. We'll come to that at a later stage. But these are the two standard categories that you understood yourself in, a free or a slave person. And so the slave then was always legally and relationally inferior to the master. That was always the point. You are inferior to me. I am your superior. And so therefore I have power over you. I have control over you. I own you. You are my property. And so whatever I do to you is my prerogative because you're my property. You don't have any say in this because you are owned by me. But even the slaves themselves understood themselves within this, the context of this hierarchy. You would have slaves who were overseers of other slaves. You would have slaves who were the boss of, of other slaves and slaves who were working in imperial household versus slaves who were working in the mines. You know, there's always a hierarchy. This is a very, very status conscious, hierarchy conscious society. And slavery was always inferior to a free person, but even within slavery itself, there were slaves who were superior and there were slaves who were inferior. Again, it had nothing to do with your ethnicity or your race or anything of those of that kind. It only had to do with your social position. In fact, this is one of the uh, important lessons that a young boy would learn at school. Um, when you're training a young man to be a future leader of the society, one of the key things that they have to learn is how to deal with slaves. It's part of the educational process. You're, you're indoctrinated into this at a young age. And so there was a nomic saying, this is basically like a little pithy statement that the boys would write down, you know, write in lines out to, to learn how to write, but also to sort of have this idea enforced into them. This idea, it says, the master who fears his slave is lower than a slave. So from the earliest age, boys are literally taught that 
any master who fears his slave is no better than the slave himself. And so the opposite of that has to be true in that in order to be a master, you have to be dominant always over your household and most especially over your slaves. This is something that has to be part of the way that you see the world is always from this dominant position. So and then if slavery is always a matter of status and, and hierarchy, what that means is that a slave is by virtue of their position, always humble. In fact, the word humility, this word that we, you know, we somewhat value this word, we, we consider humility to be a virtue, particularly in the Western world. And that is an immediate product of our Judeo-Christian heritage. We see humility as something that we value and something we, could, we, we even look for in our leaders. We want somebody who is humble and, and sort of honest about you know, where they are, who they are, and is you know, clear with their weaknesses. We, we like that. We think humility is a good thing. But when you look at this Greco-Roman world that Jesus and Paul are speaking into, humility is a vice. Humility is something that is attributable to a slave. See, what a, a, a virtuous person needs to be is dominant. A virtuous person needs to be superior. They need to be somebody who is always on top, somebody who is proud, somebody who is, you know, valorous. Humility is the opposite to that. Humility is what characterizes a slave. And so one of the greatest insults you can ever level at a person is to call them humble, is to say, you're a humble person. You just called me a slave. Those are fighting words. Those are words that create enmity. That's the last thing you ever want to be called because you've been associated with with a slave, with, with your slaves. And so this is why it's so unique and it's so profound, the way that Paul speaks about humility as a virtue, the way that he encourages humility within his congregations. And again, we're going to come to this in the coming weeks. When you look at the way that Paul instructs the households and he instructs particularly slave owners is for themselves to be humble, for themselves to be servants to others. He's instructing them to be slaves. This is the this is the countercultural thing that Paul is bringing to this world. So then, in the sense of hierarchy, the way that a slave was basically understood was that they were generally on the level of uh, of an animal. In fact, the Greek word for a slave was the word andrapodon, uh, which literally means a man-footed creature. So you're a creature that stands upright. You have the feet of a man, but ultimately you're a creature. Now, what that word builds on is the Greek word tetrapodon, which means a four-footed creature. And so all we've done is we've taken away the forefeet and we've given you man feet, but the word itself, the implication itself is that you're still a creature. You're not actually a man. You're a creature. You're not fully human. You're something below that. Now, obviously you are a human being, but the way that we perceive you, the way that you're seen is more in line with an animal because an animal serves a practical purpose. You know, cattle, for example, they pull plows as an example. Uh, and so you as a slave are a creature for our purposes. You're a human who is solely for our practical purposes. And so in that sense, you really are no better than an animal. So slavery then is absolutely embedded within the society. This isn't it's not an addition, it's infused within the DNA of how humans understood themselves. And so naturally then we would expect that there are a lot of laws around slavery in the same way that there are property laws today, there are property laws when it comes to, to slaves. And so just some examples of what we find within the Roman legal system. For example, it says the principal division of the law of persons is as follows, namely that all men are either free or slaves. 
So it's not just an ideological division between a free person and a slave. It's actually a legal division. This is written literally within to Roman law. Again, it says, slavery is an institution of the law of nations by means of which anyone, uh, anyone may subject one man to the control of another, contrary to nature. It's interesting with this one because it notes the contradiction between what they understood as the natural state of humans is to be free. We're, we're, we're meant to be free. That's our natural state. Slavery is contrary to nature in that sense, but at the same time, it's perfectly within keeping of the, of, of the social order. And so if somebody enslaves another person, that's perfectly fine. There's nothing illegal about that. If you've enslaved another person, then they become your property. It's as simple as that. And so for the Romans, it was there's no issue in going into a, a foreign city killing everybody and then taking the rest into slavery. That's perfectly within the rules of being human. It, this, these are almost natural laws that we're, we're simply abiding by. We didn't just make this up yesterday. We've always done this as a human species. Now, this is an interesting one because this actually touches on something we talked about last week. It says, slaves are so-called for the reason that military commanders were accustomed to sell their captives and in this manner preserve them instead of putting them to death. Now, I suggested last week that slavery was actually an improvement over the previous way of doing things, which is you just kill everybody. You go to war, the other guys lose, you kill all of them, you slaughter them, and that's it. You leave them to die. You, you leave them to rot. Slavery was an improvement in that when you defeat an, an enemy, you actually take them captive. You 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 give them a, a second chance at life, albeit in slavery, but they are your slaves, they're alive nonetheless. And so for these guys, at least in, in, in the sort of the course of, of human progression, they saw slavery as an improvement, as actually a better state than the way things were. So then the slave themselves, there were certain legal restrictions that, as we, we might assume, uh, when it came to being a slave. For example, basically, uh, as an overall, slaves have no human rights and privileges, none whatsoever. Um, we take for granted human rights. Uh, uh, certainly within the West, we take for granted that people have an inherent human right that the law is there to protect and to preserve. Not the case with the ancient world. Slaves have no have no rights there because they they're not fully humans, and so they they just simply have no legal rights whatsoever. There's no recourse for a slave. If a slave, um, you know, doesn't like their situation, as, as most of them probably wouldn't. There's no one they can turn to and say, oh, this person's breaking the law because it's perfectly within keeping with the legal system. There's, there's no recourse for that. A slave didn't even have a name. One of the things that happens when you are taken into slavery is that your name is taken away from you and you're given a new name. You're literally rebranded according to what your master requires from you. And in a lot of cases, you were just simply named after the task. You might have been named hairdresser or cook or whatever your task might have been or maybe you just if you were one of the slaves out in the field you didn't even have a name you were just you were a warm body to do the work for me you weren't you didn't even have the dignity of a name but there were lots of different um slave names that we might be familiar with names like felix for example felix was a slave name felix is the latin for happy or or, or lucky and so it's an ironic name right it's it's this you know you are you're, you're happy and you're so lucky in your situation, which is the total opposite probably of how you actually are. We meet a slave uh, in a couple of weeks named Onesimus. We meet him in Philemon. Now, Onesimus means useful, 
right? It's not actually a name. It's actually a description. He, it just simply means useful. And we'll see what Paul does with that in a couple of weeks. And so you don't get a name. You actually have your own, you, you get a name given to you. And if and when you're eventually freed, and in most cases you are going to be freed, you take your master's name. And so your name going forward in life is your former master's name. Now you keep your slave name, but you add to it later on your master's name as well. And so for example, if you were the slave of Julius Caesar, for example, and he had plenty of slaves, Gaius Julius Caesar, you would be named Gaius Julius and then whatever your slave name was. And so in fact, that for a slave later on can almost become a mark of pride, a mark of um, of status. You were the slave of Caesar. Well, that says something about you. you. You probably know things or you've got skills that maybe another freed slave doesn't have. And so that's something you actually wear with a little bit of pride upon being set free. And so your name is new. Your name is a reflection of your status. And then later on, it's a constant reminder that you were the property and in a sense still are the property of of your former owner. But then just in general, um, a slave couldn't have any family bonds. A slave, slaves are not allowed to be married. Uh, any children born to a slave, and, and plenty of children were born into slavery, those children always belong to their master. And so if you're the owner of the house and you're owner of slaves, um, you know, and those slaves might have conceived a child. I mean, there's nothing stopping slaves having romantic relationships, and quite often that would happen and have children. Those slaves didn't belong to the parents. Those slaves were always owned by the owner. Now, the parents of the child would naturally be the ones to raise the child, but it was never their property. In fact, a common, well, not common, but certainly it was a known story, would be that two slaves in a household would fall in love and they would want to be married. They couldn't legally be married. And so one of them would be set free. They would work for their freedom and be set free. And then they would go and work in their freedom to buy and to emancipate their partner and so that they could actually be legally married. And so this was this was a story. This, this, this happened enough for us to know that it was, it was not uncommon for, for that kind of scenario to take place. Slaves, as you might expect, couldn't own any goods. They couldn't own any property of their own and they certainly couldn't inherit anything for themselves either because you can't inherit what doesn't exist. Um, slaves could never seek redress for any injuries, right? If you're injured by your master, well, I mean, it would be like your car, you know, being complaining to somebody because you're driving the car in a, in a bad way. <laughs> One, that's crazy, but no one's going to listen to the car anyway. Um, slaves couldn't serve in the army, uh, so they couldn't do the privilege things that a free person was entitled to, again, like serving in the army or getting married or owning property or all these sorts of things. Because the point, again, you're not free. You're, you're somebody else's property. Okay, so slavery, again, it's obviously a, it, there's a legal situation that's going on. And I, and I hope you're sort of keeping in the back of your mind what the New Testament is dealing with here. This, this is not some obscure institution off to the side that could easily just be cut off from the society. This is how the world works. The world is, it goes around because of slavery. This is, you can't just simply take this away at all, let alone within a single generation. That's just never something that's, go, that's, not, that's not something that is ever going to happen. And so slavery is, is part of the legal structure. Um, and in fact, because a slave is property, this also comes with certain implications as to how you treat 
well, certainly another person's property. If you think about modern property laws, you can't just come into my house and destroy it and then walk away and, and not have any repercussions from that. You can't steal my car and just get away with it. There are laws about that. That's my property. And if you damage my property, you are liable for that. You need to pay me rec- you know, recompense for the damage that you've caused. Well, slaves are no different. Slaves are property. And so therefore to damage the property of another person is to face consequences. There are laws about that. There are lots of laws about that, in fact, in the Roman system. And so it's illegal for you to do anything that might in some way corrupt the slave, that, that might cause them to act in any way that is contrary or counter to their master's desires or to to whatever their master's requirements are. And so, for example, then it's illegal to persuade a slave to do anything which would depreciate the value. That's as simple as that. Anything that that, that would lessen the value or the the, uh, usefulness of the slave is is obviously illegal. So for example, soliciting a slave to do something dishonorable. And so basically, you know, inciting a slave to act in a dishonorable way is legal. Sorry, is, is illegal. You, you can't do that. Um, persuade them to commit some sort of injury or theft. I mean, a slave still has um, uh, still has agency. A slave can still be told to do, and that's the whole point of a slave, is that they can be told to do things. And so you can corrupt them also to do something against against their master. Well, well that's illegal. You, you can't do that. Um, you can't induce them to take flight or just to simply wander about, right? They, you can't just tell a slave, hey, you know, just run away. Just off you go. You can't do that. That is illegal. That's somebody else's property and you have caused them. <laughs> this, is, this is the crazy part about it. If, if a slave runs away, if a slave flees from their master, the crime they have committed is, is theft. They've stolen themselves. I am your property, and so by taking myself away, I am stealing myself. I am a thief, and so the punishment that I should expect is the punishment that would be given to a thief. And so naturally, you, you can't do that, right? That's that's a crime. Um, you, you can't in, incite a slave to devote themselves to magical arts or any sort of these sort of strange, secretive, cultish sort of things. Um, you can't incite them to be riotous, to be insurrectionist. You just can't do anything that would cause the slave to be of less worth or and certainly not to cause any harm or damage to their owner and to, to the property that they're part of. It's, it, that is completely illegal. Now, I'll bring this up again in the coming weeks, but we need to remember this when we think about how limited Paul was in his ability to give slaves instructions. He can't just say to the slaves, hey, go and run away and be free. That's illegal. You can't do that. And it's not just that that's going to cause the slave to be punished. That's going to cause you to be punished as well. You just can't do that. That is illegal behavior. And so at the very least, from a legal point of view, Paul's very limited in his ability to give instructions or to bring about the emancipation of slaves or to abolish slavery. Well, that's illegal. (laughs) Again, you just simply can't do that. That's not something Paul is capable of doing. All right, so that's the legal situation. And what does it look like the everyday situation for a slave? Slaves are probably make up a third of the Roman world. A third of the human population are in some sort of slavery. This, that's, that's the basic numbers that we can estimate. So what is, the, the, what is life like? Where are they? What are, they, what are these slaves doing around this, uh, around this Roman world? 
Well, for a start, they're part of every household. We've already talked about this. Every household is going to have a slave. And if you don't have a slave, it's just simply because you can't afford it. Now, there's two different types of slaves within a household. There are those that work in the household itself, and there are those that work in the country or out in the fields. And so you've got the domestic slaves or you've got the rural slaves. You're going to be working in one of those two capacities because that's really all there is. There's either you're working inside or you're working outside. There's, there's, there's no in-between in a typical household. So you're going to be one of those two things. And again, every house might have two to three slaves, but then you, you've got these large estates that might have hundreds of slaves. They've got whole slave armies at their disposal because there's just so much work that needs to be done. So it, every single house is going to have one of these. But in terms of their, their tasks, think about every task that you do or that is done for you by a machine, there would be a slave for that. Absolutely everything, right? You, you, so you literally buy a slave for a purpose. Now, you might be a family that has one slave that does everything, but a wealthier family might have a whole army of slaves in the house for a whole variety of different things, and they're specifically trained for that task. And so you would buy a slave who's, you know, maybe trained in a certain skill, or you would buy them and have them trained in that skill so that they can be then, for your purposes, the person who's going to do that thing that thing for you. So this could be anything, a bath attendant, a masseur, a hairdresser, uh, an announcer of guests, um, a waiter, a taster, a cook, uh, you know, a wet nurse, and very commonly a tutor. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the things that happened when, when Rome took over, conquered Greece, got, conquered the Greek empire, the Greeks had developed a very sophisticated educational system. And so they were, I mean, they, they were at the at the foundations of, you know, Western, the Western world effectively. And so the, the very idea of philosophy emerges out of places like Athens. And so these are highly trained men who are great teachers. That's what their job was. And the Romans didn't have anything like that. And so when they were conquering Greece, one of the um, premier things that they were bringing back were Greek teachers, men who were otherwise highly trained, sophisticated philosophers who were, you know, who had been living in freedom and who were very, um, you know, they their, their whole lives were about being free Greek men and now being enslaved into these Roman households for the sole task of training the children, for, for, for raising the boys of, of these fathers. And so a Greek tutor was a very common thing to have. That was a sort of almost a status symbol to have is somebody who's paid to to train your kids. And so, you know, we think about teachers today, the, the educational system today, the majority of teachers that we're going to find in the ancient world are in fact slaves. They are, that, that is, they're, they're brought in by somebody to do the task of, of educating the children. But then too, um, a lot of the occupations, the, the sort of the general occupations that we find uh, of that world and occupations we're familiar with today, a lot of these themselves were also filled by slaves, for example, bookkeepers. And so every wealthy, remembering that uh, an ancient business was the family. So every big household, every big estate is the company itself. They are the business. And so you need bookkeepers. Well, you're going to have slaves that are going to do that for you. That's their job. They're trained to be bookkeepers and that's what they do. And we, you know, we, we actually meet one of these in the Gospels. If you remember, you've got the, um, this slave who's, or this bookkeeper who's working for his master and he's going to be set free and he's freaking out. He's like, man, I can't, 
I don't know how to be free. I don't know how to, I can't work in the fields. I can't, you know, this is going to be really bad for me. And so he goes and he halves all of the debts of, of his master's debtors so that when he is set free, he's going to have these relationships established with these other guys that he's going to, he can carry on the thing that he's, he's trained to do. So bookkeepers, secretaries, doctors, bankers, and actors as well. Now, this is one of the one of the funny ones. If you think about actors today, we think about you know Hollywood celebrities and some of the wealthiest and most privileged and elite people. And these are the these are our our, our betters in some cases. You know these are the ones that we turn to for for wisdom and, and advice. Actors in the ancient world were always slaves. They were owned by a, a master who would basically travel from town to town with a small troop of, of actors and they would rock up in a town and they would go to the theatre and, and put on a performance. So the slave themselves, though, were, were always, the actor themselves were, were always a slave. Now, you're familiar with this, uh, these people because the Greek or the name for an actor, the Greek word for an actor is the word hypocrite. So when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's calling them hypocrites, he's literally calling them actors because the hypocrite, the actor, is somebody who puts on a mask. It's somebody who puts on a persona or a different character. And so these people were slaves. And so when Jesus is calling these Pharisees hypocrites, he's not just saying that you guys put in on a facade of holiness when really you're scumbags. It's not, what he's, it's not just what he's saying. He's definitely saying that, but there's more to it. What they are hearing is, is also, you're calling me a slave, Right? You're calling me a low-status person. That That is doubling up the insult. I mean, this is really harsh language that Jesus is using, and you can kind of understand why they wanted to kill the guy when you're going around talking about them that way. So slaves then fill any number of roles within a household. Now, again, the majority of slaves you're going to find out in the fields or you're going to find out in the mines, but within the household itself, you would find slaves for every single purpose that that you can think of you can get a slave for it. And, and that's what slaves are there to do. Now, in terms of the way that a slave is treated, well, they're property. And how property is treated is entirely up to the prerogative of the owner. In the same way of how you treat your property, you might treat it like trash, you might treat it like it's gold. It's entirely up to you. Well, slaves are no different. So how you treat them is, is entirely dependent on the person. Now, logically, Good treatment of a slave is going to result in good performance. You want slaves to do good for you. You want them to be, um, you know, to, you want them to uh, perform well for you and work diligently. Treat them well. Look after them. Now, of course, you've got to be careful with that because you don't want to treat them too well because then they might think that you're soft. You want to make sure that you know you want you want them. You got to find that balance between treating them well so that they perform well for you, but you don't want them to feel like you know, you, you're a pushover and that you're just a really nice person and so that if they do try to escape, you may not do anything about it. So you've got to always have the carrot and the stick, right? You've always got to have a whip in one hand and you've got to have the incentive in the other hand. And so what that means is that physical and sexual abuse is, always, is also going to be an absolutely normal standard part of the slave's experience. Again, you are property. You are there to do whatever I require of you, and for me to do to you whatever I desire. Now, we talked in a previous series about the, particularly the men of the house, the husbands, who would outwork their sexual desires upon their slaves, and that was perfectly standard. That's what, one of the reasons why you have slaves is to do that thing to them rather than to do that to your wife. And so slaves 
are literally there for that reason. This is you have slaves so that you can maintain the dignity and the honor of your wife. So slaves can expect that. And then that wasn't exclusive to the female slaves, the boys, anyone that took the master's fancy at any given moment would be exposed to that. That was a standard part of, of, of being a slave, as was physical punishment. You, know, this, you do the smallest thing wrong, you're going to be physically punished. In fact, in Roman law, any uh, evidence or any testimony given by sl- a slave has to be extracted by torture. So a slave could come up and say, I witnessed a murder. I saw it firsthand. I can tell you in graphic detail what happened. That's fine, but that testimony is not valid unless it's extracted by torture. So I would still have to flog you and torture you. Then you tell me the story. Now I can take it. Now I can take you at your word. Now I can actually trust you. I mean, it's just, it's backwards, of course, but I mean, so is a slave society. So is the sort of world that we're, that we're talking about here. So a slave is going to, can just expect that. That, that is just part of the, um, the, 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 the slave's life. Uh, in fact, what you're going to find in every city um, amongst, in the sort of the, the, uh, the undertaker, the, the funeral um, parlor sort of role, one of their other duties was punishment of slaves. And so for basically a day's wage, if, you, if a slave has done something wrong, well, they're going to die. Like if they've, if they've damaged the house or damaged the master, they're going to die. That's as simple as that. Now, you may not want to do that yourself. And so what you can do is take them down to the execution service. And so imagine, you know, down at your local mall, there'd be the executioner down there. And for the cost of a day's wage, you can pay that person and they would just go off and torture them and and kill them. And that was just all part of the service. So a slave always has that hanging over them. That, you know, if, if I do anything wrong, I can expect that I'm going to be flogged is probably flogging is probably the standard sort of thing you're going to experience. Now, within that, sometimes the slaves would actually revolt. They would actually turn against their masters. And there are certainly stories about slaves uh, attacking their masters, particularly the, the the more vicious of masters. They would the slaves would gang up and they would they would attack them. They would try to kill them. Now the slaves know that that they've also signed their own death warrants in doing that. But sometimes they're pushed to this limit where. They just have to get out of that situation and so try to do this. And there was there's one particular story where there, this master, while he was in his bath, the slaves came in, a group of the slaves came in and they tried to kill him. Now they failed in their killing. They nearly got him, but he managed to survive. And so what it says about this master is that he, um, what, what this, the report says later on, is that he kept himself alive just long enough to see the slaves caught and, and punished. And so they would, they sent the slave catchers out. There's no police force, but there are definitely slave catchers. They send the slave catchers out. They bring the, the slaves back and then he watches them. Um, he, 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 what he, with joy, he watches them be punished and tortured and, and executed. Then he himself dies. And that was kind of the last thing that he wanted to be able to see before he dies. Now, what's so fascinating about this is that the guy who's reflecting on this, a guy by the name of Pliny, Pliny's writing to a friend of his and he's just recounting this story of this bloke who he's heard about over here. And so he's, t- he's telling the whole story just in, you know, pretty sort of black and white, pretty standard sort of details. But what's so funny about 
how he reflects on the story, look at, listen to what he says at the end of the letter. He says, you see the dangers, the affronts and insults we're, we are exposed to, and no one can feel at all secure because he is in an easy and mild-tempered master, for it is their brutality, but not their reasoning capacity, that leaves slaves to murder masters. So, so his takeaway from this is not that, hey, you know, we push our slaves too far, we're too cruel to them, um, you know, slavery is a bad idea. No, no, no. His takeaway from this is that slaves are brutal and we, want, we need to torture them and we can't be nice to them because look what happens when we try to be nice to them. And so it's our obligation, it's our prerogative to torture them and to punish them. Otherwise, this is what's going to happen to us. And so it's just a, st a sad state of affairs that we just have to be cruel to our slaves because otherwise they could turn around and kill us if we're not cruel back to them. So yeah, it's it's backwards. This is a backwards world. This is, But this is, this is how people are thinking. This is the mindset of an ancient person. And so there was resistance. Sometimes a slave would push back, but it was never a collective action. There was no sense of the slaves uniting and unionizing and saying, we're going to bring down slavery because this is a terrible thing. That was never, ever, ever something even a slave would conceive of. No slave would think that we can get rid of the institution of slavery. Not even they would think that. If you find resistance, it's only ever individually, somebody saying, I can't handle this circumstance anymore. I need to get out of this. Even though they know they're probably going to die, it, that's still a better option than the, than the type of slavery that they're currently being exposed to. In fact, this is the whole point of crucifixion. Crucifixion always was understood as a punishment specifically for slaves. That's what it was designed for. The cross was always the threat to a slave. If you, uh, if you rebel, that's where you're going to end up. And, that, and the very the symbolism of crucifixion, it's, it's designed for a slave who thinks that they're better than their station. You're a slave and you think that you're better than your position. Well, you, you want to lift yourself up. You want to be seen to be higher than you actually are. Oh, we'll lift you up. Oh, we'll absolutely lift you up. And then we'll nail you up there. So slavery is, is what it is. It's part of this world. Where, where do the slaves come from? Well, from all different sources, primarily from captives of war, um, but sometimes people who owe, them, who owe debt will, will sell themselves into slavery in order to work off and to, to pay off the debt. Um, we, talked, we talked before about children being exposed, you know, the, all these baby girls that have been exposed at birth, where do they end up? Well, sometimes they die, but often a, a, a pimp would come along, pick them up and grow, you know, feed them and grow them up and then put them to work in their new occupation. And so prostitution largely comes out of, I mean, prostitutes are always going to be slaves, certainly, but a lot of that comes from this practice of child exposure. And so this just whole wicked cycle is just continually perpetuated within the society. Now, estimates, um, we, again, we don't have any census data as to where these slaves are, how many slaves there are, but the estimates may, during the second century BC in Rome, they estimate maybe 8,000 are coming in every year into Rome, 8,000 slaves just into the city of Rome. Um, they estimate by about the mid first century BC, there might be 1.5 to 2 million slaves in the Italian peninsula. Now, Rome itself is about a million people, so 1.5 to 2 million slaves on the just on the Italian peninsula. Forget about the rest of the empire, just in, in Italy alone. Now, every other society has its own forms of slavery and has its own proportion of slaves. 
probably about a third of the world's population, as I said, uh, you're going to find in in slavery. Now, where do you get them from? Well, you buy them at auction. And so slaves would be brought in, and this is one of the prizes of war. This is why you go to war. You go to get slaves. When when Julius Caesar went up to Gaul, so if you if you read Asterix, the whole story of the of, of the Gaul campaign, one of the things that Caesar boasts about when he comes home is that he brought back a million slaves just for himself. His his other soldiers did did the same. He brought back one million slaves of his own and then sent them back and sold them in Rome. I mean, he flooded the market to the point where basically he devalued the slave market with the amount of slaves that he brought back into Rome. But that was how he got so rich. He he, he had so much money after that campaign in large part because of the slaves that he captured and that he brought back and, and that he sold. And so in all of the major cities, in the same way that you would have a car yard, you would have a slave auction. And that was a regular part of every society. And so you need a slave, you go down to the auction and you find a slave and you, you can, you've got two choices. You can buy a brand new slave or you can buy a used slave. And so what you find is uh, you would have the auction table and the slave would be brought up and then you would, everyone would bid and you could inspect the slave. You could, there'll be a sign hanging around them telling you where they're from, their approximate age, any known skills, whether they've been a slave before or any known defects, all of the information you want to know to have to make an informed choice and then you would purchase the slave. And so you would you, that would be the way that you would get them. In fact, we actually have, we've got lots of these, but we've actually got a, a receipt, um, an invoice from one of these slave sales. And so it says, Agathos Daemon, this is the seller, by this document acknowledges to Gaius Julius Germanus that he accepts as valid the handwritten contract which, which they made concerning the female slave Dioscorus, about 25 years old and without distinguishing marks. Julius Germanus took possession of her from Agathos Daemon just as she was. She is non-returnable except for epilepsy or from external claim. The price was 1,200 drachma of silver, which Agathos Damon received in full when this handwritten sales contract was made out. That's just a standard invoice. How much you paid, who you bought them from, what, what the product was, and the, the, any sort of grounds for, for re refund. So there's, it's non-refundable except for epilepsy, which we can't see. You've seen everything else, but epilepsy, we can't tell. If she does have epilepsy, bring her back. I'll give you a full refund. Like any other commodity, like any other thing you might buy when you go down to the shops. So it, it's horrific. It's, it's, but it's, this is how the world is. This is just how things work. One of the great incentives that a slave does have, however, is the hope of freedom. Every slave in Rome knows that at some point they're probably going to be set free. Because if they didn't, they would just, well, there, there would be no incentive to, to stay a slave. If, if you know that you're always going to be in slavery, then you're going to do, it's like a life sentence. You're going to be doing everything you can to get out of the situation because this is the only choice that I have. If you know that there is freedom on offer, you're going to be more behaved. You're going to work hard. You're going to do whatever is required to earn that freedom. And so one of the things that a slave would receive is a bit of pocket money called a peculium. And basically this was kind of a little bit of uh, an incentive, you know, work hard and you get a, get a little bit of money. Now it always belongs to the parent, to the, to the owner. It's kind of like kid, giving your kids pocket money. It's kind of always your money. But if they work hard, they do their chores, they get a bit of pocket money and that gives them in some incentive to do their chores. 
In the same way, you're giving a bit of pocket money to the slaves. Now they can do whatever they want with this money, but what they typically should do is to save it up and then use it to purchase their freedom. And so you can actually, they will actually buy back their freedom and give the money back to the master who gave them to them in, in the first place, who could then use that money to go and buy a new slave. So this is one of the ways in which you could earn your freedom. Masters might also intentionally free a slave. A slave might actually be of more benefit to them free because a slave can't sign a contract, whereas a freed person can. And so you might be very good um, in business transactions. You might be a very useful business partner. So I'll free you and then I'll make you my business partner. So then you can go and do all of these legal work that I require you to do. And actually, we can actually work in partnership. And so that sometimes happened. Sometimes as well, a master would fall in love with his slave, free her so that he could marry her. And so she would become his wife. Now, I mean, for her, you know, what, what is, how is she thinking that, you know, she's now married to the guy that literally used to rape and beat her? Um, you know, that's now her husband and she's only his husband because he set her free from the slavery that he first put her into. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, the, the marriage counseling and that, I don't even know where to begin with that. But that certainly happened. And then for these slaves too, particularly for the ones who've, who've learned a skill or that they've built a network with other elites in their society because of the relationships with their former master, actually have opportunities for social advancement. In fact, there are accounts of people putting themselves into slavery so that they could get these opportunities, so that they could learn a skill, so that they could have these connections be made through slavery so that they can then take take advantage of that later on. Because for most people, they're born as, sure, they're born free, but they're born into poverty. They're born into extreme poverty. They, they don't learn any skills. They're born out in the land. They don't own any land. They're, they're basically just day laborers or they don't have any anything to speak of that they could actually put to any great benefit. They're living in an impoverished life. In fact, and this is the saddest part about the situation, when you're dealing in a subsistence level society like we are in the first century, in some cases, slaves actually have a better situation than a free person. I mean, that's just how impoverished this world was, that a slave has it better than a free person because at least a slave has clothing, has food, has a roof over their head. They don't have to worry about how they're going to feed themselves because they've got a master to do that. Now, of course, they've been beaten and tortured and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, they're alive and they don't have to worry about the things that a free person does. And even in terms of the work that they're doing, well, they're doing work that all other free people are doing anyway. Everyone's doing the same amount of work. The difference is that you're doing it as a free person or as a slave. In some cases, it's sort of six to a half dozen in the difference of, of your circumstances. But then... So what that means then for a freed person is that you become a freed man. And this is sort of this middle category that we obviously don't have anymore. But somewhere between free and slave is a freed man. You were a slave, but now you're free. But the problem is you've always got the stigma of having been a slave. Now, the thing about being set free by your master is that that's always seen as a benefit from, from the master. The master has done you a favor by setting you free. Sure, they enslaved you in the first place, but they set you free. And so you owe them. Because they set you free, you now are obligated to them. And so even though you're free, you're, no, you're now your own boss, you're still effectively under the stewardship. You're still, your boss is still your former master. You still have uh, a number of obligations to this person and your loyalty is still to be expected to go towards this master. If nothing else, you've taken this person's name. But there are, 
The upsides now is that in Rome, if you're set free, you're automatically granted Roman citizenship and all of the privileges that come with being a Roman citizen. And that's again, benefits that a lot of free people don't have. You are now a Roman citizen with a Roman name. You've got a connection back to your former master. And if your former master has uh, is a wealthy person with good social connections, you can take advantage of that. You actually become part of their business network. You become part of their family network and can actually quite seriously socially advance yourself now in this relationship you have with your former master. So it's actually of great benefit to to be set free in, into these sort of circumstances, even though you're loyal to this person and your loyalty has to be to them. That person can also, has also a lot of benefits to offer you moving forward. Now, one of the Again, downsides of this is that a free, freed person can never hold any sort of public office. They can never socially advance themselves, again, because they've always got the stigma of being a former slave. But your children are born free. Your children, on the other hand, can have those social advancements. They can enter into politics and, and have all of these opportunities that you simply and legally cannot have. And so what a lot of slaves would do is having been set free, work in their skills, they would um, you know, build up the capital and the resources that are required to give their sons the necessary education so that they themselves can then go off and have, um, and, and have the opportunities that you yourself could never have. And so that was, that was a very common story. In fact, the city of Corinth was largely founded on, these, on, the, on exactly this story. People go in there to make their fortune so that their sons in the next generation could become the leaders of Corinth. So that's a very common story that we find. But as I've said before, one of the first things a slave is going to do, having been freed, is to go and get slaves for themselves. That is, the, the cycle will continue because it's, it, it's not seen as the, an evil institution. It's just seen as, a, as the way that humans interact with each other. The only difference is now that I'm free, I'm going to have slaves that are going to provide me the benefit that I used to provide for my master. All right, so I, I think you get the point. Uh, this, this is what we call a slave society. There is there's no two ways about it. This slavery is not an add-on to an otherwise free society. It's not some addition to what we, what we other, would otherwise be doing. It's, it's at the heartbeat of this world. It's the same as the internet today. The internet is not something we add to our society. It is what makes the world go around. Everything in our lives is dependent on the internet. And to remove that would basically, as far as we can see, be the collapse of society. That's how slavery would have been seen within Paul's time. And so Christians didn't endorse it. It wasn't like there was a move, an anti-slavery movement that the Christians were pushing back against to say, no, we need to keep slavery. No, slavery was just part of the social fabric. It was part of the, the fabric of being in a human society. It's, it's just how things always were. At the very best, you might say that they tolerated it, but they certainly didn't endorse it against something else. It's just the way that things were. And the reality was that the, the Christians didn't see any need to remove it because they understood that that's how the world worked as well. They just, that's how things have always been, how things always will be. At the very best, what we see them doing or, or what we ultimately see them doing is challenging the structure or challenging the institution insofar as challenging the masters themselves in the way that they treat their slaves. Slavery is never going to go away and it's not really a fight that we need to pursue for reasons that we'll see next week. But what we can do is to change the way that we see 
slaves themselves and particularly from the way that a master will see a slave. And that's the important change, that's the important distinction that the Christians are pursuing here. They need you to see your slaves as something other than just a slave, to see them in a different status, to see them in a different light. And again, this is what the Christians are going to strive for. So anyway, we're going to deal with that over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at the way that Christians do respond to slavery and especially the way that Paul needs to or wants to, to be dealt with or seen within his communities. So otherwise, have a great week and I will see you next week.